You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So a little bit about myself. I'm from Stateline, Mississippi. Small town, about 500 people. Two four-way stop signs small. No McDonald's, no Walmart small. That kind of small town. The most beautiful thing about Stateline, Mississippi is the people and the trees. That's all we got. People and trees. Not a lot of people, we got a lot of trees. So for me, a small town country boy who grew up in Stateline, who admittedly the first time I went hunting was during small game season, hunting squirrels with my pawpaw, whose nickname is Big Daddy. Don't laugh. (laughs) So now I live in Houston, Texas, maybe not the most beautiful place in the world, but for me, being from Stateline, Mississippi, Every time I travel from the Heights, get on I-10, head towards downtown, I see the skyline. I see the skyline. And and every time I see the skyline, I'm always amazed by these beautiful architectural feats. And the skyline, for me, never gets old. I guess it's because I I grew up in a place without any red lights, and so to see a skyline is, is amazing to me. But I'm from a place... It doesn't look like much. Living in a place that has a lot of nice things to look at. So here we have Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer to the king in Persia. Persia was the leading empire of the world, and not only was the, the palace immaculate, but everything that mattered was happening in Persia. Bustling with activity, people everywhere, action, excitement. Nehemiah is rebuilding a wall in Jerusalem, a a place at the time that was a a lot less beautiful. And this was a shift from uh, uh, the history of of Jerusalem. The temple, at one point during the time of King Solomon, was an evangelistic tool. People from all over the world would come to Jerusalem to behold this amazing temple. Tourism was once a popular import for Jerusalem. People came all over the world to behold the beauty of the temple. The watching world must have looked at that temple and thought that the God who inspired this temple must be even more amazing than this architectural feat. But that was the past. So now we're in the time of Nehemiah. So what would Jerusalem have felt like by comparison? Nehemiah Left what had to have been one of the most impressive palaces in the ancient world for Jerusalem, a broken-down city that didn't even have walls. When Nehemiah arrived in chapter 2, the rubble was so thick that he couldn't even pass through as he tried to inspect the walls. And on top of that, he had petty leaders who was hating on the work that he was called to do. The situation for Nehemiah was a mess. So after they built the wall in chapter 6, We read in chapter 7, verse 4, that the city was large, spacious, but there were few people in it, and no houses had been built yet. So they get the walls built, but there are no people there. All that activity was going on back in Persia, and now Nehemiah is heading to broken down, boring by comparison, Jerusalem. But hear this. That broken down dump was where God wanted to work so the glory of his name could be spread. Spoiler alert, this is happening. God's name is being spread, has been spread through a large part of our world. And trading suburbs for the city is is not a new thing. If 
if we can call it that, what's happening in this text. So some of you have desires for suburban life. The, the people, but the people in this room keep you here. Your neighbors, your co-workers. I remember talking with a member here who had a recent conversation with her mother, and her mother was perplexed. She couldn't even imagine that her daughter was picking a place to live because of people and not because of how, of how nice it was. What if we picked where we live because of the people and not because of how nice the city or town is? Not because the city is a master plan community, but because God has a master plan to reach communities through his church. To go where the kingdom of God is not and stay there. So, so why do people need to go and stay in Jerusalem? So I'm going to summarize chapter 11 and chapter 12 for us because it's a lot of, of, it's a large text. So I'll summarize it for us. So in Nehemiah chapter 11, we have a lot of names. So the points of the name is something significant is happening. And the, and the names wouldn't be there if they weren't. So, so the people of God are casting lots to see who is going to risk their safety and go live in this tumultuous city. They risk their safety for the glory of God to repopulate the very city of God. That broken down dump was where God wants to work so the nations would know him. But this wouldn't be an easy feat. Living in this city meant that large marauding armies would walk around your city, see these large walls, and there would not be a lot of people to defend the walls, and you would be an easy target. Living in Jerusalem also meant that you would have a lot less land. Land in that time was very important for crops and for your flocks. And, and if you had land outside of the city, who was going to work your land? Chapter 11 is is about the repopulation of Jerusalem. And this isn't just a random group of people settling down anywhere. These people trace their lineages back to the 12 tribes. And they have dignity. And above all, they remember their calling to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And we learn from First Chronicles 9 and 3 that Israelites of other tribes than the three mentioned took up residence in Jerusalem. But these three, Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, they were the nucleus. They had stayed with David's heirs to form the kingdom of Judah when the rest had broken away. Now the future of Israel lay with them and with those who had rallied to them from the other tribes. So this is who would repopulate Jerusalem. Then in chapter 12, in summary, they celebrate what Nehemiah, who had requested to be sent out by the king of Persia to rebuild the wall, now it's time to celebrate the work that God has strengthened them to do. So it's interesting to note here that they didn't celebrate after the entire city had been completed, but they seemed to celebrate when the people were reformed, when the people were changed. Not when the construction of all the buildings were done, but when God had worked on the hearts of the people, and then the celebration begins. So if we look back in Nehemiah, the people told him in so many words that the rebuilding of the wall was beneath them, and they mocked him. Some, some person even went as far as to say that if a fox would walk on your wall, it would fall because the wall was so weak. But Nehemiah isn't petty like them. 
Nehemiah does the honorable thing and invites the very people who told him that he wouldn't succeed to a celebration of what God has done through his people with the rebuilding and dedication of the wall. It's interesting to note here that this is the first time Jerusalem is called the holy city. Called the holy city here at the dedication of the wall, but but the the entire city hadn't even been built yet. It it is as if the entire city is becoming a temple of God. And we don't have time to unpack all of what that means, but I, I think it has something to do with what we say here at Sojourn every Sunday about being a people to belong to, a people who knows that that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him with or without a nice palace like the one in Persia. So who are the people in this holy city? We talked about some of them a minute ago. Here are, are some of the other people on the guest list. This included priests. It also included Levites. Our first introduction to Levites is after Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Words of the Ten Commandments. When Moses comes back down, they erect a golden calf, and it's the Levites who slaughtered 3,000 people at the word of Moses. But one of the primary responsibilities of the Levites was over aspects of tabernacle or temple worship. We'll talk about this more later, how, how worship is significant through the scriptures that we've read. But, and then the high priest was also in attendance. He was the supreme religious leader of the Israelites, and he would oversee the subordinate priest. And the most important duty of the high priest was to conduct a service on the Day of Atonement, the tenth day of the seventh month of every year, and only he was allowed to enter the most holy place behind the veil to stand before God. If my memory is correct, they would tie a rope to his waist because you could die going in there. And if someone else went in there to retrieve him, they would also die. So if he died, they'd put a rope around his waist to pull him out. So this was a serious job. He would make a sacrifice for himself and the people, and then he brought blood into the holies of holies, and sprinkled it on the mercy seat, God's throne. He did this to make atonement for himself and for the people and their sins committed during the year just ended. So it's this particular service that is compared to the ministry of Jesus, our high priest. It's understanding the role of the high priest where we can better comprehend the significance of Christ offering himself for our sins, your sins, once and for all. Through Christ's sacrifice for us, we are sanctified and set apart for good works. And on the day of of the death of Jesus, Jesus reminded them that the temple would be torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus had told them that the temple would be destroyed and raised in three days. A history fact is that it took 46 years to build the temple, so the people were perplexed when Jesus said, how are you going to rebuild a temple in three days that took 46 years to build? But Jesus was talking about himself. This points to the fact that Jesus is the better high priest. We don't have to go to a place to worship Jesus. We can worship him wherever we are. And those who put their faith and trust in Jesus... Faith is sealed with the precious 
Holy Spirit, and let me also say this, Jesus didn't stay dead. After three days, he rose from the grave. He ascended is at the right hand of the Father. He's active, ruling, and reigning right now. And for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, you get the best news and the best gift ever. You get God forever. There's no better news. There's no better gift. And believer, you don't graduate from this reality. You don't graduate from the gospel. You need to remind yourself and have your brothers and sisters remind yourself that God doesn't just tolerate you. He loves you. And if you're not a believer in the room today, his invitation for you is to deny yourself and to follow him, to confess that you're a sinner in need of a Savior just like me. Listen to what Jesus said about why he came and how that impacts us. Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he uh, has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's Savior, I, I hope that it is good news that Jesus, the ultimate high priest, saves all who put their hope and trust in him, and then he gives us a job to do, to proclaim good news to the poor. So that's chapter 11 and 12. So, so in my reading, as I was reading all the names and what was going on in Nehemiah 11 and 12, the thing that I was most drawn to was worship, the, the singing. Uh, they had a celebration, and I was drawn to this because I, I love to celebrate. When, when my friends tell me good news, they got a promotion or a new job, I, I ask them, how can we celebrate? And I also love live music, concerts, music festival. Jerusalem was the live music capital of the world, according to Nehemiah. This is what is happening. They had the best musicians ascending there to worship with them, people like the Levites. This had to be amazing and a worshipful experience. Worship was literally their responsibility. This would be like if Travis Thompson didn't have to work his uh, other job and the only thing that he was responsible for was worship. This, is, this was the responsibility of the Levites. In verse 27 of, of chapter 12, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals and harps and lyres. So we, we see a shift from the Levites to being physical warriors, making physical war, like described at the base of Mount Sinai, to using song to make spiritual war. I want to focus our attention now on, on singing for joy and how worship is a tool to fight darkness. This is not a new idea for the, for the people of God. Ephesians 6 and 12 says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in, in the heavenly places. So, so this means that there is a constant spiritual war that is happening, and we sometimes don't even think about it. 
I'm going to give you two examples from Scripture and a story from 2014 uh, that I I hope help us to better understand this. In, In 1 Samuel 16, David, at the request of the king, King Saul, uses a song and a lyre. A lyre was a musical instrument. And when he sang and he played, a harmful spirit departed King Saul. This granted David favor with the king. And then in 2 Chronicles 20, the Israelites were facing an enemy, and it says they began to sing and praise, and their enemies were defeated. The people of God sang and praised their way to victory. Then in 2014, in southwest Atlanta, a young kid was lured into a car with money. The kidnapper then had to listen to this young boy sing every praise from Hezekiah Walker. So this little boy sang the song over and over, and it frustrated the kidnapper. He told him to to shut up and to stop singing. He sang so much that the kidnapper eventually kicked him out of his car. What an amazing story. The kid was like 10. They did like a follow-up on the kid, and the, 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 the worship leader, uh, the guy who wrote the song, came to his church, and they sang that very song together. It was an amazing moment. But, but what if God gave us worship to help us, but we never use it? And, and also, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying singing will fix all your problems. Singing can't do that. However, God is the fixer of all problems, and God commands us to worship, and if God said it, we should do it. I'll try to double down on that point a little bit later. In verse 43 of chapter 12, joy and rejoicing are mentioned four separate times. I love how it says it. It says, and on the day they offered great sacrificing, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. This was because the Israelites' perspective had been changed and it led them to Rejoicing. They rejoiced not because how, uh, how beautiful the city was, but they were now beholding God as beautiful. They rejoiced because God had given them joy. When is the last time you rejoiced because you had joy? Inky Johnson, a former athlete and, and public speaker, said in the talk, he said, you don't thank God for your right hand. You just expect it to be there. Inky Johnson was a defensive back for the University of Tennessee, and he almost died making a routine tackle when they were playing against Air Force. Listening to Inky give that talk, a man that now has his right upper extremity paralyzed, listening to his story is increasing my joy. I'm I'm growing more thankful and thanking God for, for the little things for my right hand, for the ability to talk, to to walk. Let's rejoice in the Lord for giving us joy. Let's rejoice in the Lord because we walk in here. We have much to rejoice for. So I ask you, what what gives you joy? I want you to think about it, maybe throughout the week, write it down, and then thank God for it. And if you can't think of anything after worship, walk over and talk to me, and I'll give you two things God has blessed you with, even with your ability to be able to do that. And I hope that then increases your joy. Then in verse 46 and 47, 
We have people giving as an act of worship to God because of, because of what they have been given, and they want to make sure that this dedication happens. So look at verse, uh, the end of, of verse 47. It says, so in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed to daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portions for the Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. So stop and consider, like, what's going on. Uh, in, in Nehemiah's day, it wasn't exactly prosperous. It was a time of economic and political crisis. The people of, of Israel were not thriving, yet they worshipped. The people funded the worship of God. Their perspective was, whatever it costs, though we must sacrifice, we, we must support the worship of God in the temple because that was what their lives were about. Admittedly, some commands we find easier to obey. And others we think, do the scriptures really tell me to do that? And I think one of the things that the scriptures point us to is singing. Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The Apostle Paul lays out his exhortation to let God's word dwell in you richly, and then he tells us how to live out that command. The first was the word teaching, but the second is singing. Singing is one of the two chief ways that God's word dwells in us richly. With that being said, I want to use the remainder of our time giving us four exhortations on worship, specific to how uh, when we worship, we're obedient. When we worship, we make war. When we worship, it leads us on the path to joy. And we worship, we glorify God. So if you don't like singing, I'm sorry. This might be a little bit hard, a hard one for you. But, but I think this, this will just, yeah, get you to see what God is saying through his word. The first thing is when you sing, you obey. Singing isn't an option in Scripture. It's a command. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. God's people are more than invited to sing. We're commanded to sing because when we sing, we're doing exactly what God asks. When you sing, you obey. Secondly, when you sing, you make war. Uh, chances are... You didn't connect singing and warfare together. But, but it's a theme visible throughout Scripture. In Colossians 3, Paul is challenging the Colossians to literally put sin to death in their lives, to, to kill sin. So all the commands to love and peace and forgiving and teaching and singing are attitudes and habits of the believer that will kill sin. We see the same thing in Ephesians 5, the command to address one another in song comes right on the heel of make the best use of the time because the days are evil in Ephesians 5.16. And the more we think about this, it makes sense. Like what posture is more hated by the evil one than the believer who is singing? Like I can't think of any uh, other posture that, that says that you are with Christ and against Satan than when your eyes, your heart, your mind are lifted together to heaven in song. It's hard to lie, be greedy, look at something inappropriate when, when you're singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Simply a heart 
that's doing that will not easily give in to temptation. A, a singing heart is a heart at war with the work of the evil one and the power of sin. When you sing, you make war. Thirdly, when you sing, you walk a God-designed pathway to joy. This is what the scriptures talk about in, uh, with us singing in, in, in Psalms 511. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let him sing ever for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt you. With Psalms 63:7. For you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings. I will sing for joy. Nehemiah 12, 27, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites and their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. James 5, 3, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. As you study scriptures on this point, you, you'll notice something that, that, that singing sometimes gives birth to. To joy, and sometimes joy gives birth to singing, but persistently in Scripture, joy and singing are bound together. It's very difficult to study these two biblical themes without encountering the other. So, so this is the challenge. If you struggle for joy, sing. If you're joyful, sing. In God's design and understanding of the human condition, he has bound joy and singing together for his people and lastly, when you sing, you glorify God through obedience, making war, and singing for joy. All these things bring glory to God, which is each person's chief goal and purpose. The worship celebration in Nehemiah, Colossians 3, and Ephesians 5 bring out uh, this simple but powerful truth, telling us to, to sing to God and to the Lord because he is the object of our praise. Ephesians 5, 19 says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It is to him and about him that we sing. Singing has such a unique way of bringing our heart, soul, and mind and strength together to focus entirely and completely on God. And in the age of distraction, singing grabs our attention and all of our senses and helps us to focus on God. In Revelation 7, 9 through 10, we get a glimpse of eternity with a great multitude of people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language singing before the Lamb. And this is the song they sing. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. For us, eternity awaits. We will sing for eternity. Let's get our reps in now. On that day, I hope you'll be one of the great multitude that no one can number singing the song of the Lamb, singing his praises. Remember, if you came here limping because the, the, the previous week beat you down, sing. If you're joyful, sing. Let's see what the Lord might do as we lift up songs to the creator and sustainer of the world. Let's pray. I thank you for your word, your word that was inspired by you, that convicts us and commands us to attempt and do great things for the glory of your name. Thank you for the word, Jesus Christ. Thank you for what he's allowed us to co-labor with him to do, 
to co-labor with him to proclaim good news to the poor. God, there are people in here who need you. We all need you. We can't move, live, or do anything without you. Help us to lean on you for that. Help us to grow in our dependence on you and not be so depending on our gifts and our abilities and our intellect, but to, to lean into a God who, who wants us to pray to him and, and wants us to sing to him and wants us to love him with all our heart, mind, souls, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Father, would you help us to be more like Jesus Jesus, who would say that the greatest among you would be a servant. God, would that be our posture to serve our neighbors and our loved ones? Um, Father, thank you for this day. And I pray that we will use the rest of this week to to bring you glory and honor. Uh, It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.